guest, we've got NBA championship coach, keynote speaker, and author, Kevin Eastman. Kevin, how's everything going for you? Going great, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time. So just wrapped up the NBA season. What were your thoughts on the bubble and everything they were able to accomplish down in Orlando? Well, when you talk about leadership and organization and the ability to deliver on what you promise, I, I think uh, they checked all the boxes. Uh, <clears throat> I think the biggest thing that they did is um, they included everyone in the solution and um, they made a plan. They stuck to it. They adjusted as they needed to along the way. And and to me, that's that's a true sign of a great leader. And, and I don't just say it was Adam Silver, because obviously many, many people were involved in that uh, to be able to have that go off really without many hitches at all. Yeah, I thought it was phenomenal. Now they're just working on figuring out what they're going to do for this upcoming season. Yeah. So let, let the powers that be figure that out and we'll just wait and see what happens. So, yeah. So, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your, your playing career. So I saw you played at Richmond and I saw it said you went undrafted. Were you thinking about playing pro ball? Well, uh, back then, uh, playing for the University of Richmond, I don't really think I ever thought about professional basketball. Uh, I, I've always been one to uh, try and be uh, the best I can be where I am. And then that should take care of the future. So what ended up happening is is um, the old ABA uh, that folded, and a new league was formed called the AABA, and they actually had a franchise called the uh, the Virginians, which was headquartered here in Richmond, Virginia. <clears throat> so I think more based on the popularity I had as a local University of Richmond player versus the talent that I had. Uh, uh, I, I, I ended up making their team. Oh, cool. So could you say I played professional basketball? Uh, yes. Could you say I was very good at it? Uh, not sure. Uh, but it, it'll always go down in the bio as he did play. My, my favorite ABA um, Virginia the Squires story was, of course, the Marvin, the Marvin Barnes when he chartered the flight. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the particulars about that, but, the, the, you know, that team with the, Dr. J was on it. Uh, they were stationed more in Norfolk about okay. um, maybe about 90 minutes from where we were up at, in Richmond. Okay. But I do remember going down to see one of the games at the uh, Norfolk scope when I was in college. So it was fun for us just to have a team like that yeah. uh, close by. Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to ask you, so, so pivoting over to coaching, how, how did you get it? How do you get involved in it? What was kind of your first, your first uh, gig with that? Well, when I was a player, I think I probably played the game and thought the game more so than other players like a coach. Uh, I couldn't say I was a coach on the floor uh, because I didn't think of myself as that, as that, even though I was the point guard. So for me, once the game told me, hey, this is it, you're not good enough to go any higher or, or go any longer, then you have to make a decision. And um, at that same time, a new coach uh, was being named at the University of Richmond where I went to school. Yeah. So um, he asked if I'd like to be a graduate assistant. They had what those positions back then. So I said, sure. So I worked on my uh, graduate degree as well as coached and found out that I really enjoyed doing it. And, and the best part of it was I was able to, to, and I did this during camps in the summer during my college career, was able to help players see that they could do things they didn't think they could do yeah. and, and get them to understand that if you did these things on a consistent basis, you actually would improve. And then ultimately, if you keep improving, then maybe you become all that you dreamed of becoming. So for me, it was the lucky happenstance of the career ended and there was a position available at a place where I was well known. So I ended up uh, taking the position offered by Lou Getz, who was the head coach at the time. And um, from that point on, it, I, I guess that it was history. How did you become intertwined with Doc Rivers and how did that, come, that opportunity come about? Well, it came about uh, without my even knowing it was coming about. Um, and I have a personal philosophy where I, I, I said at the time, never pass up a basketball opportunity. Yeah. So um, 
I was actually at the time the athletic director at a small college close to Richmond, Virginia here called Randolph-Macon College. Of course, yeah. Division three school. Yeah. And as I was driving home one afternoon, I got a call from a gentleman by the name of uh, Glenn Wilkes. And those of the, your listeners who know a lot about basketball, uh, Glenn's a very well-respected coach. He was coaching at, uh, at Stetson during his collegiate okay. career. Anyway, he, he, once he got out of coaching, he started running clinics. And one of the clinics was in Mississippi. So I get a call on a Friday afternoon. Actually, it was a Thursday afternoon. And it was Glenn. And I had known Glenn from being involved in some other clinics that I spoke at. And he said, Kevin, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, well, nothing really. Why? What do you, what do you have in mind? He said, well, um, one of our speakers uh, has had trouble getting here and we're trying to find a replacement speaker. Would you be available to speak at our clinic? Uh, and it was, again, in Mississippi. So I said, sure, I'll be glad to do it. Uh, when do you need me there? And he said, well, you know, we, we got a flight ready for you this afternoon. I said, well, how would you know, like, I would say yes. He said, you always say yes. <laughs> So I go down there, I give my, my talk on skill development. So um, in the crowd was a guy by the name of George Ravling, who was then uh, one of the most powerful people, people in all of Nike basketball and really all of basketball. And he was in the crowd because he was a very good friend of Glenn Wilkes. So uh, after I got done speaking, I didn't even know George was in the crowd listening. George asked Glenn, Hey, can, Kevin's really good at what he does. Can you see if he would work our All-American camp that Nike was putting on? And the All-American camp was where the best players in the country and the best, college, best high school and the best college players came uh, to drill and then play games in front of college coaches. And then the college players would play games in front of NBA scouts. So I said uh, yes to that. Well, long, much longer story, shorter, that led me to uh, Nike hiring me full time to be a consultant for them and do skill development for all the best players around the country and the AAU teams they played for. So one of the places I was sent was Orlando, Florida, and I worked out the Florida team. And on that team, again, unbeknownst to me, because I didn't know any of the players, all the Nike guys did, but I didn't. I just went in, did my thing, uh, worked them out, sweated with them, pushed them, that sort of thing. So uh, one of the players on the team went home to his father that night and said, man, dad, we had an unbelievable guy working us out. He was sweating with us. He was in the drills with us. He was grabbing us, pushing us, holding us. He was able to teach things in such a simple way that we got it right away. And his drills were, were different than I've ever seen. So his dad said, oh, interesting. Uh, what's his name? And the kid said, Kevin Eastman. Well, the kid who was talking to his dad the kid's name was Jeremiah Rivers. The dad's name was Doc Rivers. At the time, Doc was doing TV yeah. uh, for the NBA and calling NBA games each Sunday. So uh, he was also up for a couple of NBA jobs. So again, to speed dial this, he asks me to come in, interview at his house. I do that. He offers me the job on the spot. So had I not said yes while I was driving home that day from Randolph-Macon, I wouldn't be on this podcast. That's crazy. And then so fast forward, he gets the job. Was that kind of all? Did it come together very quickly when, in Boston? Yeah. He, well, he, I, I, he ended up knowing he was probably going to be offered that job. Yeah. And that's when I came in to speak with him. Um, so we, we met at a restaurant for lunch, I think it was that day. Then we drove over to his house, kind of hung out at his house. Uh, you know, his wife came in for a little while and just had an enjoyable time. Uh, I didn't think it was an interview as much as just a discussion about what he wanted to do. So he had known he was going to get that job and he knew he was going to accept it. So he was trying to formulate his staff. So I came on in the NBA, there are, uh, rules about the number of coaches you can have from this standpoint it's unlimited how many total you can have but only three assistant coaches can be on what they call the front bench yeah the bench that everybody sees with the players during games right and then you can have as many as you want on what they call the back bench which is behind the bench 
So I was one of the behind the bench guys my first two years, I think. And then the third year got promoted uh, to the front bench. Oh, cool. I have a question. So the 20, 2008, the off season, um, did the Ray Allen trade, did it surprise you? Yeah. You know, when you're an assistant coach up there, you're not privy to all that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, Obviously doc and Danny Ainge were in communication all the time. Um, And as people have come to find, it was a little earlier in Danny's career when I was with him, but as people have come to find over the years, uh, he's not afraid to do anything or go after anything. So when he made the kind of the draft day trade, uh, for Ray, that was the start of something that, okay, we just improved. Yeah. And then Ray snowballed into Kevin Garnett, uh, where I think we gave Minnesota like 7,000 players. Yeah, right? it's a long if, list. I was yeah, thinking. if we'd have had a million players, we'd have given them <laughs> Minnesota. So, um, so we ended up getting Kevin, and um, that was the formation for us to be able to go after really important players that no one ever talks about that are key to winning championships. Absolutely. So I have a question. So the, 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 the trade for Garnett, I know initially he really wasn't really about it, but eventually he came to it. Was there a backup plan if Kevin had said, no, I want to stay in Minnesota? Or were you, would you have just gone forward with, with, with Paul and Ray and Rondo and Perkins and Al Jefferson? Well, again, not being privy to what yeah. uh, was going on, knowing Danny and knowing Doc, uh, there was a backup plan. But the backup plan, backup plan could, have, could have easily been, no, we're going to stay put. And we'll get uh, when the when the next trade uh, period is, we'll get back uh, actively involved again. So, um, but Danny is the the one thing. It's it's constantly on his mind how to make this team better. Yeah, and um, he's not afraid to hear no. Therefore, that means he's not afraid to make the call to possibly hear yes. Some people are afraid to make the call and hear yes, right? A lot of people are afraid to hear no. Yeah. So Danny had no fear because in his mind, why would be, I be afraid of trying to improve our team? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then so after they make the Garnett trade and they send half the roster to Minnesota, you obviously have some spots to fill on the bench. I, is it true they were considering Reggie Miller? Uh, that I don't know the the, the validity uh, of that, so I couldn't speak to that. But here again, Danny's Danny. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of the NBA is talent acquisition. Yeah. Um, and then you figure it out once you have them all together, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, on maybe logically, it doesn't make sense to have Ray and Reggie, no. right? And then ironically, Ray ends up uh, surpassing Reggie's three-point totals. Yeah. Right? So um, so it was probably great for Reggie to stay where he stayed and for Ray to become a part of the Boston yeah. Celtics. So I have a question. So the Celtics team today, do you think they could use a scoring duo off the bench similar to you guys had in any house in James Posey, especially this past season, where kind of getting buckets when the starters were taking a rest? Was it a little bit, I could say – wasn't was a little bit of an issue well i think anyone can use more scoring off the bench uh you you have to have players coming off the bench that can uh maintain or improve what was previously happening with the starters so i i I don't think anyone would pass up uh, the opportunity uh, to get that and trust me danny is is thinking every single day and I don't, even though my son is a scout for the Celtics, I have no inside information because he may be the best hire ever in terms of keeping his lips shut. He doesn't even tell dad who they're going to draft. That's wild. So, yeah. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, of course. Um, because yeah, he may tell dad, but then he has to trust dad doesn't tell anybody else. Right. <laughs> so if I were him, I'd do the same thing. My yeah. wife sometimes is like, why doesn't he tell us more? Because that's his job not to yeah. tell us. Why, why isn't he treating these Brooklyn picks for Kawhi Leonard? He's available. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. And then so what, after you guys start to solidify the bench a little bit more, you bring in Eddie House, you bring in James Posey. Later in the season, you bring in Sam Cassell, you bring in P.J. Brown. Did you think at that point, like, all right, we've got enough and we've got the depth to, to go all the way? 
Well, you know, we started out strong, but that that preseason, people were saying, hey, Boston's going to be pretty good. Yeah. No one was really saying Boston was going to be in the finals early on. And then we jumped out to a, a, a great start, which I think is key, or was for us anyway, uh, giving us the confidence that this group we had together can win any type of basketball game. Because in that great start, we played against teams that tried to slow it down, teams that tried to deny maybe Ray shots. Uh, we saw a lot during the year. The one thing we didn't see is a little bit of what we were concerned of. We didn't see a stretch of adversity. And um, Doc always believes you have to go through some to win a championship. So whether that's internal bickering or injuries uh, or trades, something that causes angst uh, amongst the group. And we didn't have that uh, uh, for most of the year. But, you know, starters are really important. Uh, they win you a lot of games, start, starters and stars. But your bench has a... Uh, they provide a unique contribution to you winning a championship because the longer your bench can be during the playoffs, the more you might be able to rest your starters and get more out of them when they actually are in the game. Obviously rotations shrink in the playoffs, but Eddie house provided us incredible shooting, right? Uh, PJ Brown, a late acquisition provided us unbelievable stability and he was incredible away from the arena. I remember seeing him in our Detroit series, which went seven games. Yeah. And he was walking down the street with one of our one guy, one of our young guys who had had a bad game the night before. And you could just see him mentoring. I was actually eating outside at a restaurant for lunch. And I happened to see PJ and this player, I won't name who it is, but they're walking down the street, just talking back and forth. And I thought to myself, wow, that is leadership that no one will ever even see or know about. Um, and then James Posey was crucial because at the time he was the only one that knew what a championship looked like. He was with the heat, wasn't he? Yeah. So he, he was the only one who actually won a ring and, uh, and that included doc and all of our coaches yeah. and every one of our players. So he had the ear of the players and he also led the second unit. Yeah. I never thought about this ever until James came on board. Uh, you can have a captain of your team, but you can also have a captain or a leader of your second unit. Yeah. And James would always, before players were about to go in, not every game, but uh, when he sensed he needed to do this, he might walk from his seat on the bench knowing that uh, maybe Glenn Davis was about to be put in the game and talk to, to, to baby for two minutes yeah. before he went in. You know, that's leadership that people don't see but leadership that you need to have in order to, to play at a championship level. What kind of growth did you see from Rondo from before the acquisitions of, of Allen and Garnett to basically being relegated to, all right, you, maybe you were one of the up and coming guys in this team now, but now it's more of a unit. Did you kind of see some growth from him knowing that he could kind of carry the ship? Well, the one thing with Rondo, uh, Rajan knows that, that, uh, he's good at certain things yeah. and he knew those things were really important to, to winning a championship. So uh, what I think he saw with the acquisitions was, uh, you know, there are some players in the NBA who are uh, pro players, but they're not professionals. Yeah. They play in the pros, but they're not professionals. Yeah. So what Rajan saw was what a professional truly does every single day. That could be something like a, a Paul Pierce uh, on the treadmill on game day morning before shoot around. The coaches are, we're all trying to say, Paul, don't waste, you know, don't kill your legs. But he needed that in his routine to be Paul Pierce that night. The everyday work ethic of Kevin Garnett, the uh, all the shooting drills, and repetitions that Ray Allen got. You know, the interesting thing you find out in the NBA is that the best shooters also take the most practice shots. They get the most repetitions of their shot. There's a reason why they're the best shooters. So I think what uh, uh, Rajan was able to see is 
that, uh, okay, this is how you work. These are the habits that need to, need to be there for a player to become their best, right? So I, I, I think he had great examples and examples are uh, tremendous ingredients for leadership, right? The, the, the best leaders are those that actually show you more than tell you. So I have a question. So going into that first round series against Atlanta, you guys are heavy favorites. You win the first two at home. Were you surprised it was the, the team was struggling to pick up a road victory? Um, I, I don't know that surprise because what you do learn in the NBA, even the bad players are good. Yeah. So on any given night, uh, a team can beat you. If, uh, you don't come with your normal effort. If you don't come with a teamness about you, especially in playoffs. Uh, and if you don't respect your opponent and sometimes that happens, I don't, I'm not saying it happened with us, but sometimes that does happen when, when you're playing 82 games or you're in the first round of the playoffs, let's say. Um, so this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. That was really the first adversity we had seen where, uh oh, if we don't correct this, then we're out. Yeah. Right. So um, Doc's big thing is we just have to be us more often than the other team is themselves. Right. So just be us. We don't have to play the super game or the super series. Just do what we do. You've all been given a role, which is your value to this team. And that, that's where we kind of differentiated. A role isn't just something you give somebody so they can't shoot. A role is something you, you, you give someone because that is the true value that they can bring to this team to be able to give us a chance to win a championship. So uh, disappointed, yes. Surprised, no. Maybe the public was. But, but we knew, um, you know, an NBA player can beat you. Like if you let a Kyle Korver get off, he can single-handedly help Atlanta beat you, right? Uh, and I can't even remember if Kyle was on Atlanta back then. Maybe. I know, I know they had was, – was Josh – I don't know, maybe Josh. Yeah, Josh, Josh, Al Horford. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Bibby. I think Bibby. They were pesky. Yeah. And then so so then after game seven, you, you go over that hump, go against Cleveland, and then yet again, it's just, just home games, and then you go into game seven against LeBron. Was there any doubt? What were, you, what were you saying to the guys before the game but like to get their confidence up? No, Doc's big thing on game sevens is coaches rarely have anything to do with a game seven. Interesting. Players win or lose game sevens. Meaning if you ain't ready to play in game seven, then we shouldn't be here. Uh, to represent the NBA properly, we should let the other team win because we're not coming with our best that night. We are not mentally into this game. We are not emotionally ready to go. So uh, for us, I, I remember Doc uh, talking about, hey, this is great. <laughs> I'm going to try and help you guys as much as I can, but I played in this league. And I can tell you, game sevens are all about the players. So I'll guide you and maybe make a few adjustments. But guys, when we win game seven, you guys will have won it. Not me, not Kevin, not Tibbs, not Long. You guys will win it. Yeah, interesting. And then so so fast forward to the the um, East Finals, you take Detroit in sixth, and then you're matched up, of course, against the Los Angeles Lakers, the most storied rivalry in NBA history. What were the guys thinking before that series tipped off? What, do you think they were more ready then for that series than at the start of the playoffs? Yeah, I, I think each step you take, you know how much more difficult it will be. And it gets to something that I always talk about uh, – whether it be in my corporate speech, uh, speaking or when I speak to sports teams, I, I, I always talk about the concept of the Lakers practice too. You know, we go in as the Celtics and we think, okay, we've practiced all these sets and all these defenses and we just have to go out and do them and, and we'll win. And then we find out on Google, my gosh, the Lakers are practicing too. How about that? <laughs> we didn't think they practiced it all this year. So, they're every bit as good at, at executing their stuff as we are at our stuff. So we knew it was going to be a tough battle. 
we knew they had one of the best players in the world, the best players ever to, to put on a basketball uniform. Uh, now, when you're talking about beating some really good players, it's different when you're talking about beating one of the best, yeah. right? So uh, for us, uh, the theme was still the same. Let's win or lose this thing based on being the Celtics more often and more consistently than the Lakers are the Lakers. Right. And then let whatever happens at the end happens at the end. So, so back then the finals was two, three, two. Who do you think that benefits? Uh, we, we, we didn't care. We really didn't. Uh, because sure. When you're going from LA to Boston, there are flights involved. Um, but what you find out in the NBA is your body gets on a rhythm. You know, now that, that I have left the NBA and I'm actually sleeping six hours a night, some people think that that's like, that's all. Well, you know, you're probably going four or five consistently uh, during the course of, of, especially a run like that. Yeah. I mean, there were times in, in the playoffs where I know Doc was, was, was going on maybe three hours, right? It's just the way it is. But your body knows that. So I don't know that all that stuff plays into it because what you find out is no matter where the game is, that's the most important game that particular night. And you, you treat it as such. And we were going into the thing knowing that uh, it's, the, it's a race to four. And uh, there's no one in the history of the NBA that could go from one win and then in the next game have four wins. Yeah. So even though it's cliche-ish, uh, our guys really believe no matter what happened the game before, even if we blew them out, this is a new game. And it is the only game. So we didn't care about two, three, two, one, 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 one. Wouldn't have mattered because they also had to take flights. Yeah. Right. Now, crowd, different story, yeah. right? You're going to get some energy from your crowd. So uh, that plays a part. Uh, so that's how we treated it. Okay. And I know people want to hear like other stuff. Yeah. But really, that was how we treated yeah. it. And then, so, and then you guys steal game one against L.A. And then game two, the unlikely hero is Leon Poe. Did you see that coming? Well, we like to say we won game one, uh, that we didn't steal it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I'm sure depending on perspective, uh, we were lucky or we stole it or we won it or Lakers were lucky we didn't play better, right? <laughs> Who knows what happened? We won the game, right? Yeah. You know, what Leon was uh, – was also a guy that was very important to us because uh, number one, he pushed our starters in practice. Number two, he was an incredible team guy. Uh, number three, he did not care if you even asked him to shoot ever. Uh, if he could help you win a game by diving on the floor, um, by guarding anyone on the other team, by only playing four seconds, he would do that. So. You know, could you say it surprised us? Maybe, but but he he surprised us all during the year. And the biggest surprise was this guy is selfless. I mean, all he wants to do is have the team win games. Um, and that's why even today he's a great ambassador. He works yeah. for the Celtics yeah. and he's a great ambassador for the Celtics because he truly is the definition of a Celtic player. Uh, because what you find by talking to all the great uh, players is you, you don't you didn't play for the Celtics, you know. Bill Russell said this: you don't play for the Celtics, you are a Celtic, and there's a big difference in the two. Yeah, and and Leon's a Celtic. Yeah, and then so so fast forward to Game Six. Was there any message before the game like, all right, we let's try to close this thing out. We don't want it to go to seven. Uh, no, it was just like you know. Let's try to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Everybody would like to close the game, close the thing out. Um, but you talk about Rondo. Rondo dominated early on in that game. I mean, he dominated the pace. He dominated our activity. Uh, he dominated sprinkling the ball all around. Uh, he, he, he was a different uh, – he, he took it up a notch in, in that game. Um, so – uh, so for us, it was simply just, Hey, we're at home. Let's try and win this thing. Okay. You, this is a golden opportunity for us. 
um, let's not waste it, but also let's understand that they, uh, they know how important this game is too. So uh, we've got to give the very best we have and have to be prepared for a return of the very best that they have. I have a question. So the, so the late Kobe Bryant once said that no player in the NBA ever guarded him as well as Tony Allen did. Did you see him just take his game to another level in that series? Tony? Yeah. Yeah, Tony loved challenges. And in particular, he loved defensive challenges. Yeah. And um, uh, he, I mean, he studied Kobe. He knew Kobe's tendencies. Uh, he also didn't get frustrated, even though you might have seen him go like that when Kobe scored. He, but inside him, he knew the next possession defensively. He had to uh, bend his knees, get down, and make it as tough again on Kobe as he could. And uh, he consistently did that uh, for us. So uh, I, I can see, because Tony's a pest, if he has a chance to push you when the referee's not looking, you might be pushed, Right. If someone screens him, he's going to fight through that screen. He's not going to melt or give up on that screen. He is going to do everything that you hope as an offensive player he doesn't do. He was relentless, and that's what you need. To guard somebody like that, you need uh, resolve, resilience, and a relentlessness. No matter if he comes down and, and shoots three straight 33-foot jumpers in your face, the fourth time you have to come down, get in your stance and make it as hard as you can in that possession. Tony did that. And then so to fast forward to the end of the game, it's not even close. Lopsided win. The series is over. What was your mindset knowing like we just won the title? Yeah, well, some of the thoughts were, um, I can't believe a kid from Haddonfield, New Jersey, uh, is, is on this bench. <laughs> uh, about ready to, I think, win a world championship. The other feeling that I had that was very prominent is I'm, I'm so glad uh, for Doc uh, that because when you get around Doc, you find out how truly great a person he is um, and how truly giving he is. So, uh, so I really wanted badly to do my job as best I could to help him win the championship. Um, and then what the other thing was, what you find out also in the NBA, uh, as you get older, there are certain things because you've been in the league a while, meaning players, that you just acquire because of the money, right, that you make. You acquire uh, the, the beautiful mansion. You acquire the second home that's equally as big as the mansion. You, you, you have all the boats. You have all the bling, right? But the thing that you can't buy is a, is a, is a championship ring. It is not for sale. Uh, at least the first time it's given, right? Now, a player may in, in his future sell it for some other reason, but... KG sold his to Adam Sandler. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, the, 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 and then the other thing, both my father and Doc's father uh, passed away that season. And I remember whispering to Doc as we were walking uh, uh, over to shake their, the opponent's hands. He probably doesn't even remember it. I said, Doc, this is amazing. Both our dads are probably looking down, smiling right now. Yeah. So that's awesome. That's really cool. And then so I want to fast forward to 2010, game six of the finals. Perkins gets hurt. The reports coming out were that it was a knee sprain. Did you guys know his season was over? Yeah, pretty much. So what, yeah. what, what, what was the, was the, there was no chance he was playing in game seven, right? Was that just what was incredibly that? doubtful? The preparation for, was for him not to play. Um, so what that does is that moves like uh, Rashid to the starting center spot, which means he has to play starters minutes, yeah. which he wasn't used to playing all year. And if you remember, he cramped up. Yeah. And then you have to either go small or to what would be your third string center. And as good as all the players are in the NBA, you probably don't win championships if your third string center is really, really important to winning a game or a series. Um, so, you know, I, I remember we had to play Kevin crazy minutes and as intense as he plays and, and he's giving you everything he has in that moment. A human being is a human being. Yeah. It still cannot be what he could have if he had some, his normal rest during the game. And uh, 
the average fan may not understand that, but I, I was able to see it on a day to day for 13 years, um, how important those little spurts of, yeah. of being on the bench are for, for players who play as hard as Kevin. Yeah. And then as good as Bynum was playing, were you, were you surprised to see his kind of career kind of like just kind of fall off a little bit? Cause he, at that point, he was one, one of probably one of the best five centers in basketball. What, what was it like matching up against him when you didn't have Perkins? Yeah. Well, he's so big yeah. first off and Powell is so big. Uh, I mean, Powell's arms, he can be in Staples center in Los Angeles and probably reach out and touch the the court that he played on as a little kid over in what Italy or Spain, Spain. wherever it's Spain. Yeah. Spain. Yeah. I mean, that's how long his arms were. So um, with, with Bynum, again, I get back to no matter what you think, how good or how bad a player is, they made it to this level. Yeah. They can produce, right. They have the ability within themselves to produce on any given night or given nights. Um, so, uh, I, you know, because I wasn't there with him on a daily basis, I can't speak to, to, to why his career, you know, he had some injuries for sure, but, uh, I never speak on why people don't get to where everyone thinks they should. If I haven't been with them each and every day yeah. or consistently been around them, maybe in the off seasons to see work ethic and that sort of thing. So I don't really know. Interesting. And I have a question. I think a lot of Celtics fans will say that you got to put an asterisk on that game seven because Perkins didn't play. What do you think that game would have been like had he been healthy? Well, hang on. Let me get my phone and look up the, the 2010 NBA finals. Uh, Google says Lakers won. And I, I can turn my phone every which no asterisks. Lakers beat us, right? No matter what. Boston people say, or, or uh, like, there's no asterisk on this, on this. Uh, it's a mental, at least for me, it's a mental asterisk. Like, we yeah, don't. I mean, you, you, <laughs> you, um, part of pro sports uh, is injuries. Yeah. Right. And that's why when we were talking earlier about your bench. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, the lesson there could have been, did we, did we condition all of our bench as much as we should have? You know, maybe it was our fault, yeah. right? So, uh, or should we have worked the third string center in more game situations during the course of the season, right? If we had done that, probably it would have been the first team ever in the history of the NBA to do that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you always think back, what could we have done? But uh, I don't think the Lakers should see it as an asterisk. Doc may think differently. Perk may think differently. Do we think we could have won with Burke? Perk? Yeah, no question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. And there's I was a question. So um, do you think the Celtics fans have been unfair to Ray Allen for deciding to go to Miami? Do you think they should just put put it like make what make it water under the bridge and just celebrate him for what he did do for the city? Well, you know, I, I can't speak to what they should or shouldn't do. Um, but free agency is actually free agency. Yeah. You get the opportunity uh, to choose. Um but what comes with that is, uh, you know, every choice we make, whether it's in free agency on, a, on an NBA team or in life, uh, you have the freedom of choice. You don't have the freedom of the consequences, yeah. right? Even if a college player does something stupid at a party on campus, he had the choice to do that stupid thing, yeah. but he does not control the consequences, nor does she if she's yeah. on the women's team, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the consequences are going to happen. Then they happen differently in uh, different choices. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm always one who, who, who wishes everybody just uh, treated everyone uh, really well and really yeah. respectfully and, yeah. and nice to people. Um, so, you know, I'm sure it's, it's hurt Ray. Yeah. Uh, I haven't ever talked to Ray about it specifically, but he's a human being. Yeah. yeah. I have a question. Did, did the, when the trade to the Clippers, did that surprise you for when, when Doc and, and you and the coaching staff went to LA? Yeah. I, you know, I didn't even think of it at the time as a trade, like, and Doc will probably tell you, man, if they're trading for me, the Clippers ain't going to win this trade. Uh, Cause that's how Doc is. Yeah. Right. Uh, but also underneath 
he knows he's good. Yeah. Right. So, um, no, it, I don't think it surprised me, but I also can tell you that I really didn't think about it because my wife, Wendy would tell you, if you asked her, what's the one thing that, well, one among many things that bug you about your husband, Kevin, one of them is he can just move on to the next thing. Like it bugs her to death. Like, why can't you be mad for a day? Like, why can't you carry some ill, ill uh, will on people for at least maybe seven days and 12 hours? I just don't. It's my nature not to. So I just went on to the next thing. And there was a period where we didn't know. He wasn't going to come back to Boston, but was the thing going to go through? Yeah. So we were trying to figure out, do we keep, because we keep us our permanent home in Virginia, we had a, uh, an apartment up in uh, downtown Boston. Yeah. Keep our apartment. Do we resign for another year? You know, these are things that people don't even think about. Uh, and then we're going to LA, the yeah. price of living out there, you know, all that stuff goes through your head. But I wasn't really thinking, I, I thought the whole time it would work out. Yeah. So, uh, but probably Wendy was more worried than, than I was. Pretty sure I was on my way to my to a college visit when I heard the news come on the radio, and I'm like, "What?" But it was I was like, "All right, well, I don't know how they got a first round pick out of it, but Danny's going to do what Danny can do." So, to that to that Clippers team, had had you had you worked with a player as talented at that stage in his career as Blake Griffin? Um not that offensively talented and athletically gifted. Yeah. Um, you know, Rondo had some incredible talent oh God, to, yeah. his, to his game. Um, but everyone thinks offense talent is shooting only, uh, or they put that at a premium. Um, so no, I mean, he was, he was so gifted, but so, the, so was DJ in terms of athletic ability. <clears throat> I mean, Kevin Garnett is a freak of nature athletically in, in his ability, not so much to jump real high, but his ability to, to laterally slide and yeah. keep a much smaller, quicker person in front of him. So you try and use that, that ability uh, in your system. <clears throat> DJ, when he sprints the floor, no one in the NBA could keep up with him. Now, when he ran the floor, a number of centers could keep up with him. So the difference was the next level, right? To sprint versus just run fast. So both of them were so, so gifted. And Chris Paul, uh, boy, the skill level he has is, is off the charts. And the interesting thing about um, Blake and Chris in particular is they really work at their games. Yeah. You know, Blake improved his shot tremendously from when he came into the league to certainly when he left us and, and, and has still improved today to the point where when he, he rises up from a three, you're not cringing at all for yeah. sure. Right. But I saw him on a, on a daily basis in the gym. And if I didn't see him, I knew he was with Bob Tate, who was, who was working with him on a daily basis and maybe a, a high school gym in Manhattan beach rather than yeah. our facility. Right. So, um, so no, I mean that you, you, he was gifted. Yeah, and then I, I've, got, I've got one last question for you. Do, do you think Rajon Rondo is a future Hall of Famer? See, I don't really think about Hall of Fames and 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 who should and shouldn't get in. So this is his second ring. Yep. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know all of his stats, so that would probably have to be studied. Um, so I would feel very comfortable saying, I don't know. Interesting. Uh, you know, having been around him, I'd love to, to see him get it. I'll tell you what, if there was a stat for basketball intelligence, he's a savant basketball wise. Um, like you better know your stuff. If you're going to talk to him about the game when you're a coach, you know, our scouting reports for playoffs were maybe four inches, five inches thick for a team. Now, for a regular game, it might be three pages. Yeah. But you go in such detail when you're playing a team seven times, right? If, if we won the last regular season game, game 82, 
we would always have our first round playoff books actually in their cars. Someone would get the keys of the players, put them in their front seat, right? So they knew right that night preparation starts, right? For say the Atlanta Hawks, which you were talking about earlier. The next day, you better know that whole book as a coach because Rondo might come in and say, hey, I'm fist up, thumb down on page uh, 79. Didn't you guys have that guy a little bit higher up out of the corner than he normally is? And you're thinking like, fist up, thumb down. What is that? Right? He knows it all. So, so in his own way, now he should be in the Basketball Intelligence Hall of Fame. Yeah. Without question. Yeah. Was that play he made against Orlando, the hustle play against Jason Williams, one of the best hustle plays you've ever seen? And they yeah, one of the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and, that, and I remember in the playoffs against Miami, I can't, it might've been 2010, Doc called a sideline out of bounds play, which was a, a lob to Rondo. I, I think I remember, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you foresee going into coaching more between Rondo or Chris Paul? Uh, Rondo. And the reason I say that he's already done some things yeah. where he's trying to get a feel of coaching. Yeah. In the off season, he's gone to some um, uh, gatherings where uh, the NBA is trying to help foster guys who want to become coaches, players who want to become coaches, actually do some coaching. Yeah. Um, but tell you what, you play for him, you better be ready to know your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that that's really all the questions I really had for you. Um, how can people uh, keep up with you on social media? I know you do a lot of speaking. How can people um, get in touch with you just for future endeavors? But I really do appreciate you taking the time to chat for a few minutes today. Yeah, well, uh, probably the best thing is our, our website, uh, kevineastman.net. And that can take you to the corporate speaking. It can take you to the sports team uh, speaking. I Well, prior to the pandemic, I was doing maybe – 70 speaking engagements a year. Yeah. Obviously, since the pandemic, that is almost literally shut down. I'm doing more virtuals. Um, and then uh, many people ask about the book that I've written uh, that basically talks about many of the things we're talking about here today. Like, how do you become your best? Yeah. And um, the book is called Why the Best are the Best. And uh, that can obviously be ordered uh, for by an individual or a team through our website. Cool. All right, cool. I'll put a link to that and I can so yeah. give an easy access. Cool, cool, cool. A lot of organizations and, and corporate uh, companies are, are writing the book for their, their team. Um, and then, you know, I've thrown out a couple of teaching things and bullets today as we've spoken, Zach, and um, people can follow me on Twitter if they like. I don't care either way. I'm not one that has to have X amount of things. <laughs> I just want people on there who uh, really want to grow, develop, and improve, uh, whether they're in sports or not sports. So, yeah. so there would be tweets on leadership, teamwork, culture, uh, professional development, uh, those types of things every day. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a ton of fun. I probably have I probably have 400 more questions for you, but I do appreciate you taking the time. It's been a blast, but I do really appreciate it. And I'm glad all is well, but it's been awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Keep doing what you're doing. You're providing a good service for a lot of people.
I've got no- 